Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 44 of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, we continue through War and Peace with chapters 3 and 4 of book 2. Will Austria and Russia allow the surrogate denizen Napoleon to sift through Europe? Let us find out, and let us begin. Chapter 3 On returning from the review, Kutuzov took the Austrian general into his private room and, calling his adjutant, asked for some papers relating to the condition of the troops on their arrival and the letters that had come from the Archduke Ferdinand, who was in command of the advanced army. Prince Andrew Bolkonsky came into the room with the required papers. Kutuzov and the Austrian member of the Hofskriegsrath were sitting at the table on which a plan was spread out. Ah, said Kutuzov, glancing at Bolkonsky, as if by this exclamation he was asking the adjutant to wait, and he went on with the conversation in French. All I can say, General, said he with a pleasant elegance of expression and intonation that obliged one to listen to each deliberately spoken word. It was evident that Kutuzov himself listened with pleasure to his own voice. All I can say, General, is that if the matter depended on my personal wishes, the will of His Majesty, the Emperor Francis, would have been fulfilled long ago. I should long ago have joined the Archduke, and believe me on my honor, that to me personally it would be a pleasure to hand over the supreme command of the army into the hands of a better informed and more skillful general, of whom Austria has so many, and to lay down all this heavy responsibility. But... Circumstances are sometimes too strong for us, General. And Kutuzov smiled in a way that seemed to say, You are quite at liberty not to believe me, and I don't even care whether you do or not. But you have no grounds for telling me so, and that is the whole point. The Austrian general looked dissatisfied, but had no option but to reply in the same tone. On the contrary, he said in a querulous and angry tone that contrasted with his flattering words. On the contrary, your excellency's participation in the common action is highly valued by his majesty. But we think the present delays depriving the splendid Russian troops and their commander of the laurels they have been accustomed to win in their battles, he concluded his evidently prearranged sentence. Kadutsov bowed with the same smile. But that is my conviction, and judging by the last letter with which His Highness, the Archduke Ferdinand, has honored me, I imagine that the Austrian troops, under the direction of so skillful a leader as General Mack, have by now already gained a decisive victory and no longer need our aid said Kutuzov. The general frowned. Though there was no definite news of an Austrian defeat, there were many circumstances confirming the unfavorable rumors that were afloat. And so, Kutuzov's suggestion of an Austrian victory 
sounded much like irony. But Katuzov went on blandly, smiling with the same expression, which seemed to say that he had a right to suppose so. And, in fact, the last letter he had received from Mac's army informed him of a victory and stated strategically the position of the army was very favorable. Give me that letter, said Katuzov, turning to Prince Andrew. Please, have a look at it. And Katuzov, with an ironical smile about the corners of his mouth, read it to the Austrian general the following passage in German from the Archduke Ferdinand's letter. We have fully concentrated forces of nearly 70,000 men with which to attack and to defeat the enemy should he cross the Lech. Also, as we are masters of Ulm, we cannot be deprived of the advantage of commanding both sides of the Danube, so that should the enemy not cross the Lech, we can cross the Danube, throw ourselves on his line of communications, recross the river lower down, and frustrate his intention should he try to direct his whole force against our faithful ally. We shall therefore confidently await the moment when the Imperial Russian army will be fully equipped and shall then, in conjunction with it, easily find a way to prepare for the enemy the fate he deserves. Kututsov sighed deeply on finishing this paragraph and looked at the member of the Hofskriegsrath mildly and attentively. But you know the wise maxim, your excellency, advising one to expect the worst, said the Austrian general, evidently wishing to have done with jests and to come to business. He involuntarily looked around at the aide-de-camp. Excuse me, general, interrupted Katuzov, also turning to Prince Andrew. Look here, my dear fellow. Get from Kozlovsky all the reports from our scouts. Here are two letters from Count Nostitz, and here is one from His Highness the Archduke Ferdinand, and here are these, he said, handing him several papers. Make a neat memorandum in French out of all of this, showing all the news we have had of the movements of the Austrian army, and then give it to His Excellency. Prince Andrew bowed his head in token of having understood from the first not only what had been said, but also what Kututsov would have liked to tell him. He gathered up the papers, and with a bow to both, stepped softly over the carpet and went out into the waiting room. Though not much time had passed since Prince Andrew had left Russia, he had changed greatly during that period. In the expression of his face, in his movements, in his walk, scarcely a trace was left of his former affected languor and indolence. He now looked like a man who had time to think of the impression he makes on others, but is occupied with agreeable and interesting work. His face expressed more satisfaction with himself and those around him. His smile and glance were brighter and more attractive. Kututsov, whom he had overtaken in Poland, had received him very kindly, promised not to forget him, distinguished him above the other adjutants, and had taken him to Vienna 
and given him the more serious commissions. From Vienna, Kutuzov wrote to his old comrade, Prince Andrew's father. Your son bids fair to become an officer distinguished by his industry, firmness, and expedition. I consider myself fortunate to have such a subordinate by me. On Kututsov's staff, among his fellow officers, and in the army generally, Prince Andrew had, as he has had in Petersburg society, two quite opposite reputations. Some, a minority, acknowledged him to be different from themselves and from everyone else, expected great things of him, listened to him, admired and imitated him. And with them, Prince Andrew was natural and pleasant. Others, the majority, disliked him and considered him conceited, cold, and disagreeable. But among these people, Prince Andrew knew how to take his stand so that they respected and even feared him. Coming out of Kututsov's room in the waiting room, with the papers in his hand, Prince Andrew came up to his comrade, the aide-de-camp on duty, Kozlovsky, who was sitting at the window with a book. Well, Prince? asked Kozlovsky. I'm ordered to write a memorandum explaining why we are not advancing. And why is it? Prince Andrew shrugged his shoulders. Any news from Mac? No. If it were true that he has been beaten, news would have come. Probably, said Prince Andrew, moving toward the outer door. But at that instant, a tall Austrian general in a greatcoat, with the order of Maria Theresa on his neck and a black bandage round his head, who had evidently just arrived, entered quickly, slamming the door. Prince Andrew stopped short. Commander-in-Chief Kotutzvaf, said the newly arrived general, speaking quickly with a harsh German accent, looking to both sides and advancing straight toward the inner door. The commander-in-chief is engaged, said Kozlovsky, going hurriedly up to the unknown general and blocking his way to the door. Whom shall I announce? The unknown general looked disdainfully down at Kozlovsky, who was rather short, as if surprised that anyone should not know him. The commander-in-chief is engaged, repeated Kozlovsky calmly. The general's face clouded. His lips quivered and trembled. He took out a notebook, hurriedly scribbled something in pencil, tore out the leaf, gave it to Kozlovsky, stepped quickly to the window, and threw himself into a chair, gazing at those in the room as if asking, Why do they look at me? Then he lifted his head, stretched his neck as if he intended to say something, but immediately, with affected indifference, began to hum to himself, producing a queer sound, which immediately broke off. The door of the private room opened, and Kututsov appeared in the doorway. The general, with the bandaged head, bent forward as though running away from some danger, and, making long, quick strides with his thin legs, went up to Kututsov. Vous voyez le mal mac 
he uttered in a broken voice. Kutuzov's face, as he stood in the open doorway, remained perfectly immobile for a few moments. Then wrinkles ran over his face like a wave, and his forehead became smooth again. He bowed his head respectfully, closed his eyes, silently let Mac enter his room before him, and closed the door himself behind him. The report, which had been circulated that the Austrians had been beaten, and that the whole army had surrendered at Ulm, proved to be correct. Within a half an hour, adjutants had been sent in various directions with orders, which showed that the Russian troops, who had hitherto been inactive, would also soon have to meet the enemy. Prince Andrew was one of those rare staff officers whose chief interest lay in the general progress of the war. When he saw Mac and understood the details of his disaster, he understood that half the campaign was lost, understood all the difficulties of the Russian army's position, and vividly imagined what awaited it and the part he would have to play. Involuntarily, he felt a joyful agitation at the thought of the humiliation of arrogant Austria, and that in a week's time he might perhaps, see and take part in the first Russian encounter with the French since Suvorov met them. He feared that Bonaparte's genius might outweigh all the courage of the Russian troops, and at the same time could not admit the idea of his hero being disgraced. Excited and irritated by these thoughts, Prince Andrew went toward his room to write to his father, to whom he wrote every day. In the corridor, he met Nesvitsky, with whom he shared a room, and the wag Zerkov. They were, as usual, laughing. Why are you so glum? asked Nesvitsky, noticing Prince Andrew's pale face and glittering eyes. There's nothing to be gay about, answered Bolkonsky. Just as Prince Andrew met Nesvitsky and Zerkov, there came toward them from the other end of the corridor, Strauch an Austrian general who was on Gdutsov's staff in charge of the provisioning of the Russian army, and the member of the Hofskriegsrath who had arrived the previous evening. There was room enough in the wide corridor for the generals to pass the three officers quite easily. But Zerkov, pushing Netsvitsky aside with his arm, said in a breathless voice, They're coming! They're coming! Stand aside! Make way! Please, make way! The generals were passing by, looking as if they wished to avoid embarrassing attention. On the face of the wag Zerkov, there suddenly appeared a stupid smile of glee which he seemed unable to suppress. "'Your Excellency,' said he in German, stepping forward and addressing the Austrian general. "'I have the honor to congratulate you.' He bowed his head and scraped first with one foot, and then with the other awkwardly, like a child, at a dancing lesson. The member of the Hofskriegsrath looked at him severely, but seeing the seriousness of his stupid smile, could not but give him a moment's attention. He screwed up his eyes, showing that he was listening. I have the honor to congratulate you. General Mack has arrived, quite well, only a little bruised just here, he added, pointing with a beaming smile to his head. The general frowned, 
turned away and went on. Good God, what simplicity, said he angrily, after he had gone a few steps. Nesvitsky, with a laugh, threw his arms round Prince Andrew, but Bokonsky, turning still paler, pushed him away with an angry look and turned to Zerkov. The nervous irritation aroused by the appearance of Mac, the news of his defeat, and the thought of what lay before the Russian army found vent in anger at Zerkov's untimely jest. If you, sir, choose to make a buffoon of yourself, he said sharply with a slight trembling of the lower jaw, I can't prevent your doing so, but I warn you that if you dare to play the fool in my presence, I will teach you to behave yourself. Nesvitsky and Zerkov were so surprised by this outburst that they gazed at Bolkonsky silently with wide open eyes. What's the matter? I only congratulated them, said Zerkov. I'm not jesting with you. Please be silent, cried Bolkonsky, and taking Nesvitsky's arm, he left Zerkov, who did not know what to say. Come, what's the matter, old fellow? said Nesvitsky, trying to soothe him. What's the matter? exclaimed Prince Andrew, standing still in his excitement. Don't you understand that either we are officers serving our czar and our country, rejoicing in the successes and grieving at the misfortunes of our common cause, or we are merely lackeys who care nothing for their master's business? Forty thousand men massacred, and the army of our allies destroyed, and you find that a cause for jesting, he said, as if strengthening his views by this French sentence. It is all very well for that good-for-nothing fellow of whom you have made a friend, but not for you. Not for you. Only a hobbledehoy could amuse himself in this way, he added in Russian, but pronouncing the word with a French accent, having noticed that Zerkov could still hear him. He waited a moment to see whether the cornet would answer, but he turned and went out of the corridor. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 The Pavlograd Hussars were stationed two miles from Brunau. The squadron in which Nikolas Rustov served as a cadet was quartered in the German village of Salzenek, the best quarters in the village were assigned to Cavalry Captain Denisov, the squadron commander, known throughout the whole cavalry division as Vaska Denisov. Cadet Rustov, ever since he had overtaken the regiment in Poland, had lived with the squadron commander. On October 11th, the day when all was astir at headquarters over the news of Mack's defeat, the camp life of the officers of this squadron was proceeding as usual. Denisov, who had been losing at cards all night, had not yet come home when Rustov rode back early in the morning from a foraging expedition. Rustov, in his cadet uniform, with a jerk to his horse, rode up to the porch, swung his leg over the saddle with a supple, youthful movement, stood for a moment in the stirrup as if loath to part from his horse, and at last sprang down and called to his orderly. 
Ah, Bondarenko, dear friend, said he to the hussar, who rushed up headlong to the horse. Walk him up and down, my dear fellow, he continued with that gay brotherly cordiality which good-hearted young people show to everyone when they are happy. Yes, your excellency, answered the Ukrainian gaily, tossing his head. Mind, walk him up and down well. Another hussar also rushed toward the horse, but Bondarenko had already thrown the reins of the snaffle bridle over the horse's head. It was evident that the cadet was liberal with his tips, and that it paid to serve him. Rustov patted the horse's neck, and then his flank, and lingered for a moment. Splendid! What a horse he will be, he thought with a smile, and holding up his saber, his spurs jingling, he ran up the steps of the porch. His landlord, who, in a waistcoat and a pointed cap, pitchfork in hand, was clearing manure from the cowhouse, looked out, and his face immediately brightened on seeing Rustov. A very good morning, a very good morning, he said, winking with a merry smile, evidently pleased to greet the young man. Busy already, said Rustov with the same gay brotherly smile which did not leave his eager face. Hurrah for the Austrians, hurrah for the Russians, hurrah for Emperor Alexander. The German laughed, came out of the cowshed, pulled off his cap, and waving it above his head, cried, And hurrah for the whole world! Rustov waved his cap above his head like the German and cried laughing, And hurrah for the whole world! Though neither the German cleaning his cowshed, nor Rustov back with his platoon from foraging for hay had any reason for rejoicing, they looked at each other with joyful delight and brotherly love, wagged their heads in token of their mutual affection, and parted, smiling, the German returning to his cowshed, and Rustov going to the cottage he occupied with Denisov. What about your master? he asked Lavroshka, Denisov's orderly whom all the regiment knew for a rogue. Hasn't been in since the evening. Must have been losing answered Lavrushka. I know by now. If he wins, he comes back early to brag about it. But if he stays out till morning, it means he's lost and will come back in a rage. Will you have coffee? Yes, bring some. Ten minutes later, Lavrushka brought the coffee. He's coming, said he. Now for trouble. Rustov looked out of the window and saw Denisov coming home. Denisov was a small man with a red face, sparkling black eyes, and black tousled mustache and hair. He wore an unfastened cloak, wide breeches hanging down in creases, and a crumpled shako on the back of his head. He came up to the porch gloomily, hanging his head. Lavoska! He shouted loudly and angrily. Take it off, blockhead! Well, I am taking it off, replied Lavrushka's voice. Ah, you're up already, said Denisov, entering the room. Long ago, answered Rustov. I've already been for the hay and have seen Fraulein Matilda. Well, I've been losing, brother. I lost yesterday like a damned fool 
cried Denisov, not pronouncing czars. Such ill luck. Such ill luck. As soon as you left, it began and went on. Hello there, T. Puckering up his face, though smiling and showing his short, strong teeth, he began with stubby fingers of both hands to ruffle up his thick, tangled black hair. And what devil made me go to that rat? An officer nicknamed the rat. He sat rubbing his forehead and whole face with both hands. Just fancy. He didn't let me win a single card. Not one card. He took the lighted pipe that was offered to him, gripped it in his fist, and tapped it on the floor, making the sparks fly while he continued to shout. He lets one win the singles and colors it as soon as one doubles it, gives the singles and snatches the doubles. He scattered the burning tobacco, smashed the pipe, and threw it away. Then he remained silent for a while, and all at once looked cheerfully with his glittering black eyes at Rustov. If at least we had some women here. But there's nothing for one to do but drink. If we could only get to fighting soon. <sighs> Hello. Who's there? He said, turning to the door as he heard a tread of heavy boots and the clinking of spurs that came to a stop, and a respectful cough. The squandering quartermaster, said Lavrushka. Denisov's face puckered still more. Wretched, he muttered, throwing down a purse with some gold in it. Wustov, dear fellow, just see how much there is left and shove the purse under the pillow, he said, and went out to the quartermaster. Rustov took the money and, mechanically arranging the old and new coins in separate piles, began counting them. Ah, Telyanin, how'd you do? They plucked me last night, said Denisov's voice from the next room. Where? At Bikov's? At the rats? I knew it, replied a piping voice, and Lieutenant Telyanin, a small officer of the same squadron, entered the room. Rustov thrust the purse under the pillow and shook the damp little hand which was offered him. Telyanin, for some reason, had been transferred from the guards just before this campaign. He behaved very well in the regiment, but was not liked. Rustov especially detested him and was unable to overcome or conceal his groundless antipathy to the man. Well, young cavalryman, how is my rook behaving? He asked. Rook was a young horse Telyanin had sold to Rustov. The lieutenant never looked the man he was speaking to straight in the face. His eyes continually wandered from one object to another. I saw you riding this morning, he added. Oh, he's all right. A uh, good horse, answered Rustov, though the horse for which he had been paid 700 rubles was not worth half that sum. He's begun to go a little lame on the left foreleg, he added. The hoose cracked. That's nothing. I'll teach you what to do and show you what kind of rivet to use. Yes, please do, said Rustov. I'll show you, I'll show you. It's not a secret, and it's a horse you'll thank me for. Then I'll have it brought round, said Rustov, wishing to avoid Talyanin, and he went out to give the order. In the passage... Denisov, with a pipe, 
was squatting on the threshold facing the quartermaster who was reporting to him. On seeing Rusov, Denisov screwed up his face and pointing over his shoulder with his thumb to the room where Telyanin was sitting, he frowned and gave a shudder of disgust. Yuck. I don't like that fellow, he said, regardless of the quartermaster's presence. Rustov shrugged his shoulders as much as to say, eh, Nor do I, but what's one to do? And, having given his order, he returned to Telyanin. Telyanin was sitting in the same indolent pose in which Rustov had left him, rubbing his small white hands. Well, there certainly are disgusting people, thought Rustov as he entered. Have you told them to bring the horse? asked Telyanin getting up and looking carelessly about him. I have. Let us go ourselves. I only came round to ask Denisov about yesterday's order. Have you got it, Denisov? Not yet, but where are you off to? I want to teach this young man how to shoe a horse, said Talyanin. They went through the porch and into the stable. The lieutenant explained how to rivet the hoof and went away to his own quarters. When Rustov went back, there was a bottle of vodka and a sausage on the table. Denisov was sitting there scratching with his pen on a sheet of paper. He looked gloomily in Rostov's face and said, I am waiting to her. He leaned his elbows on the table with his pen in his hand, and, evidently glad of a chance to say quicker in words what he wanted to write, told Rustov the contents of his letter. You see, my friend, he said, we sleep when we don't love. We are children of the dust, but one falls in love and one is a god. One is as poor as on the first day of creation. Who's that now? Send him to the devil, I'm busy, he shouted to Lavrushka, who went up to him not in the least abashed. Who should it be? You yourself told him to come. It's the quartermaster for the money. Denisov frowned and was about to shout some reply, but stopped. Wretched business, he muttered to himself. How much is left in the puss? he asked, turning to Rustov. Seven new and three old imperials. Oh, it's wetted. Well, what are you standing there for? You scarecrow! Call the quartermaster! He shouted to Lavrushka. Please, Denisov, let me lend you some. I have some, you know, said Rustov, blushing. Don't like bowing for my own fellows. I don't, growled Denisov. But if you won't accept money from me like a comrade, you will offend me. Really, I have some, Rustov repeated. No, I tell you! and Denisov went to the bed to get the purse from under the pillow. Where have you put it, Wustov? Under the lower pillow. It's not there! Denisov threw both pillows on the floor. The purse was not there. That's a miracle! Wait, haven't you dropped it? Asked Rustov, picking up the pillows one at a time and shaking them. He pulled off the quilt and shook it. The purse was not there. Dear me, can I have forgotten? No, I remember thinking that you kept it under your head like a treasure, said Rustov, 
I put it just here. Where is it? he asked, turning to Lavrushka. I haven't been in the room. It must be where you put it. But it isn't. You're always like that. You throw a thing down anywhere and forget it. Feel in your pockets. No, if I hadn't thought of it being a treasure, said Rustov. But I remember putting it there. Lavrushka turned all the bedding over, looked under the bed and under the table, searched everywhere, and stood still in the middle of the room. Denisov silently watched Lavrushka's movements, and when the latter threw up his arms in surprise, saying it was nowhere to be found, Denisov glanced at Rustov. Rustov, you've not been playing schoolboy, Twix. Rustov felt Denisov's gaze fixed on him, raised his eyes, and instantly dropped them again. All the blood which had seemed congested somewhere below his throat rushed to his face and eyes. He could not draw breath. And there hasn't been anyone in the room except the lieutenant and yourselves. It must be here somewhere, said Lavrushka. Now then, you devil's puppet, look alive and hunt for it, shouted Denisov, suddenly turning purple and rushing at the man with a threatening gesture. If the purse isn't found, I'll flog you. I'll flog you all. Rustov, his eyes avoiding Denisov, began buttoning his coat, buckled on his saber, and put on his cap. I must have that purse, I tell you, shouted Denisov, shaking his orderly by the shoulders and knocking him against the wall. Denisov... Let him alone. I know who has taken it, said Rustov, going toward the door without raising his eyes. Denisov paused, thought a moment, and evidently, understanding what Rustov hinted at, seized his arm. Nonsense, he cried, and the veins on his forehead and neck stood out like cords. You are mad, I tell you! I won't allow it! The purse is here! Or flay this scoundrel alive, and it will be found. I know who has taken it, repeated Rustov in an unsteady voice, and went to the door. And I tell you, don't you dare to do it, shouted Denisov, rushing at the cadet to restrain him. But Rustov pulled away his arm, and, with as much anger as though Denisov were his worst enemy, firmly fixed his eyes directly on his face. Do you understand what you're saying? He said in a trembling voice. There was no one else in the room except myself. So that if it is not so, then he could not finish and ran out of the room. Ugh! May the devil take you and everybody! Were the last words Rustov heard. Rustov went to Talyanin's quarters. The master is not in. He has gone to headquarters said Talyanin's orderly. Has something happened? He added, surprised at the cadet's troubled face. No, nothing. You've only just missed him, said the orderly. The headquarters were situated two miles away from Zalzedek, and Rustov, without returning home, took a horse and rode there. There was an inn in the village, which the officers frequented. Rustov rode up to it, 
and saw Talyanin's horse at the porch. In the second room of the inn, the lieutenant was sitting over a dish of sausages and a bottle of wine. Ah, you've come here too, young man, he said, smiling and raising his eyebrows. Yes, said Rustoff, as if it cost him a great deal to utter the word. And he sat down at the nearest table. Both were silent. There were two Germans and a Russian officer in the room. No one spoke, and the only sounds heard were the clatter of knives and the munching of the lieutenant. When Talyanin had finished his lunch, he took out of his pocket a double purse and, drawing its rings aside with his small white, turned-up fingers, drew out a gold imperial and, lifting his eyebrows, gave it to the waiter. Please, be quick, he said. The coin was a new one. Rostov rose and went up to Talyanin. Allow me to look at your purse, he said in a low, almost inaudible voice. With shifting eyes, but eyebrows still raised, Talyanin handed him the purse. Yes, it's a nice purse, yes, yes, he said, growing suddenly pale and added, Look at it, young man! Rostov took the purse in his hand, examined it and the money in it, and looked at Talyanin. The lieutenant was looking about in his unusual way, and suddenly seemed to grow very merry. If we get to Vienna, all get rid of it there, but in these wretched little towns, there's nowhere to spend it, said he. Well, let me have it, young man, I'm going. Rostov did not speak. And you? Are you going to have lunch too? They feed you quite decently here, continued Talyanin. Now then, let me have it. He stretched out his hand to take hold of the purse. Rostov let go of it. Talyanin took the purse and began carelessly slipping it into the pocket of his riding breeches, with his eyebrows lifted and his mouth slightly open, as if to say, Yes, yes, I'm putting my purse in my pocket, and that's quite simple and is no one else's business. Well, young man, he said with a sigh, and from under his lifted brows he glanced into Rostov's eyes. Some flash as of an electric spark shot from Talyanin's eyes to Rostov's and back, and back again, and again, in an instant. Come here, said Rostov, catching hold of Talyanin's arm and almost dragging him to the window. That money is Denisov's. You took it, he whispered just above Talyanin's ears. What? What? How dare you? What? said Talyanin. But these words came like a piteous, despairing cry and an entreaty for pardon. As soon as Rostov heard them, an enormous load of doubt fell from him. He was glad, and at the same instant began to pity the miserable man who stood before him. But the task he had begun had to be completed. Heaven only knows what the people here may imagine, muttered Talyanin, taking up his cap and moving toward a small empty room. We must have an explanation. I know it and shall prove it, said Rostov. I... Every muscle of Talyanin's pale, terrified face began to quiver. His eyes still shifted from side to side, 
but with a downward look not rising to Rostov's face, and his sobs were audible. Count! Don't ruin a young fellow! Here is this wretched money! Take it! He threw it on the table. I have an old father and mother! Rostov took the money, avoiding Telyanin's eyes, and went out of the room without a word. But at the door he stopped and then retraced his steps. Oh, God, he said with tears in his eyes. How could you do it? Count, said Talyanin, drawing nearer to him. Don't touch me, said Rostov, drawing back. If you need it, take the money. And he threw the purse to him and ran out of the inn. End of chapter four. We really see in these chapters a rather stark contrast in tone between chapter three and chapter four. Tolstoy paints this really cold reality of war, pun intended, of how, you know, Prince Andrew is finally coming to grips, or not finally, he's always come to grips with the fact that Austria has just been sitting here as a meat shield for the Russians. And now that the great Austrian commander Mack has come back beaten, bruised, and bandaged, he realizes now Russia is not going to play around. We're going to go to war. Blood will finally be shed. Serious blood will be shed at the hands of Napoleon's armies. Mack was like the Ulysses S. Grant or Dwight D. Eisenhower of generals in some of these major wars. Like, he was a big deal. And the fact that Austrian just won, lost one of their greatest generals' armies, let's just say, I mean, he's still alive, obviously, but they just lost that. And Kututsov, the Russian general, the great Russian general, he's realizing how weak Austria really is, and... Although Austria wants to latch on to Russia, uh, Russia's pushing it away like a, you know, a mother rejecting her own children. Because, let's be real here. Okay, like, honestly, like, I don't know if Russia's part of Europe or Asia or what. I don't really care. But Mother Russia is called Mother Russia for a reason. The massive country and its land watching over Europe with a steady gaze and letting their child Austria take the brunt force of Napoleon's army hoping that Austria will be able to hold them back well now that last line of defense is gone dissipated Russia has no other option than to enter this war Prince Andrew recognizes this but we see here in chapter 4 Count Rostov's reaction and the, the cavalry people's reaction to this news. Because it states at the beginning of this chapter, they found out that Mack's army was defeated. And they're still acting cheerfully and jovially. And there's this kind of like side anecdote that Tolstoy writes in this chapter. It's really weird. But it is here to illustrate that nobility is still prized and protected at all costs in Russia. And even when Talyanin slights Denisov, 
of his fortune and Rustoff comes to his aid, you see this still Russian honor shame amongst nobility because Telyanin is technically nobility, but he didn't come from a very well-off family. And it's very humbling and humiliating of Rustoff to just toss the purse back to him and just say, here, take it if you really need it. Because Rustov clearly doesn't need the money because he even offered to front for Denizov to pay off this, the quartermaster because he was like, you know what? You can pay him off um, with my money. Denizov's like, no. I, you know, and there's, there's still some pride there. So, man, just a very interesting you know like you would think that war is the great equalizer of classes you know like it doesn't matter who you're fighting with whether they're you know great russian nobility or the lowest peasant you all bleed the same you are all united under a common cause you know there's no elitism there's no room for elitism in war and yet we still see it being played out at this point very intriguing to me but, alas, we must close at that. And until next time, thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. And until next time, as they say in show business, that's all you wrote.